This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. There, is, there are three reasons why blood covenant is cut. We touched on some of this last week. The first reason was for protection. And uh, we're going to have a look at some of the characteristics of blood covenant cutting. But there are reasons why people want to enter into blood covenant relationship. A weak tribe would go along and they would seek to get to induce a stronger tribe that neighbored them to enter into blood covenant relationship for their own protection so that they wouldn't be annihilated by people. The second one was for mutual benefit. And you find this in business. Remember that a covenant is an agreement. Okay? And we've used that word so lightly. You know, we should never even have a situation where people go to court litigating because somebody's broken an agreement. Breaking of an agreement shows lack of character, lack of integrity. You see? And, and I know, I've, I've read enough history of this great country to know that as a nation there was a time when people were bound by their word and you could count on it. On a handshake, they would do a deal bound by the person's word, and he would never renege on it. We've lost integrity. We've lost character. But in business, they would enter into covenant relationship to protect themselves. We find this as a business ploy even today. If there is a, a rival who've got the cutting edge, they're moving ahead of us, what we do is shore up our organization by entering into agreement with another large organization that provides us with measures of protection. See? It gives strength against what's going on in the, in the opposition's camp. And we need to understand that both parties in that situation would benefit. You consolidate two businesses, you reduce overheads, you've got greater resources, theoretically, you get the opportunity to, to streamline operations and so on, and so people would enter into agreement for their mutual interest. And then the third reason that people enter into covenant relationship is because of love. And we're going to have a look, we're going to find that marriage today is one of the greatest expressions of blood covenant relationship. But people enter into the deepest of personal relationships by cutting covenant. Now remember the Hebrew word for covenant is bereth, and it basically means to cut, to make an incision where blood flows. The blood speaks of life. The life is in the blood, and we're going to have a look at this in a little bit of detail later this morning. But when we have a look at covenant relationship and we talk about love, there is a love that can exist between two people of the same sex, and it's not homosexuality. See? Uh, David and Jonathan, they did not have a homosexual relationship. Their love was phileo. The deep love, respect, a bonding, a coming together, a soul tie relationship. See? And soul ties are okay, provided they don't cut against and cut through a marriage. In actual fact, I believe that what God wants to have happen in a true marriage relationship is that husband and wife become soulmates. And that doesn't happen too often. I don't know why. I've got some ideas. 
And of course, one of the biggest dangers that you have in a relationship like that, in a marriage relationship, is that your partner or you find yourself establishing soul ties. You're connecting in the spirit realm with a person outside of the marriage. And that can be a threat to the marriage. Part of the reason that uh, Paul was so strong in his criticism of the, the, what was going on in the church at Corinth was that they, there were women there who, through sex, imparted spirits. And they had been born again and come into the church and they wanted to rule the church the way that they had ruled the temple because they were priestesses and they were prostitutes as priestesses. In the, in, in the temple. And they would give their bodies, and through the giving of their bodies, they would communicate spirits. But at the same time, any time that you have illicit, listen to me, illicit sex, you start establishing soul ties with that person. And then you go along back into your marriage, or you get married, and you can't work out why it is that every time that you're in bed with your partner in marriage, you keep getting flashbacks, to what happened with this other person. It's a soul tie. And it needs to be severed. It needs to be broken because you're depriving your partner of a very important part of the relationship. You can't give them what you're already giving to somebody else. And that takes place in the spirit realm. Do you understand? So when we understand blood covenant relationship, we understand the things that David said when he went out to meet Goliath. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. When he declared the battle is the Lord's, when he posed the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision was a sign of covenant relationship. And his, un, his comment about being uncircumcised, he's talking about a person outside of the covenant that he has with God. How can he stand there and taunt us and nobody stands up and takes up the cudgels? He said, how does this happen? And it was a total rebuke, you see. Total rebuke. Now, God has cut covenant with us for all the reasons that we've given. He has cut covenant through Jesus in order to protect us. He's cut covenant through what Jesus did in order to provide for us. And He cut covenant in order to demonstrate that He truly loves us. Now, when we have a look at the characteristics of blood covenant relationship, I want to make this statement, and, and, and I can't find anything that contradicts this. I, th I believe I'm on really safe ground. In every instance in Scripture where a covenant was instituted between God and man, God was the initiator. I want you to go to Genesis, would you, please? The book of Genesis. We're doing a study at this time. You see, what God does is God goes and God comes to man and declares His will concerning the covenant. Covenant in the Bible is God coming to man and presenting to man what He intends to do. Now, I want us to grab hold of this truth because this is what happens. God comes and says, this is what I'm going to do. He puts the responsibility on man for deciding whether he wants it or he's going to reject it. 
So man can choose to accept it or reject it, but man cannot in any way alter it. Nothing's negotiable there. God says, that's it. Do you like it? Yes or no? But you can't change it. So when God establishes covenant, He does it on a basis of, there it is. You want it? This is what you've got to do in order to indicate you want it. You don't want it? That's okay. But none of the content is negotiable. See? So have a look at Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And, and here you've got the actual cutting of covenant uh, aspect that we're going to get into uh, where, where God starts covenanting not just by word, but by deed, with Abraham. Have a look here. Uh, the bottom half of verse 1, for the sake of connection, God says, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. Well, nobody can walk before God and be perfect. God is not saying, I'm looking for you to walk a life that is blameless. He is not saying that. It's the same story as God was talking to Job about when the record is born that Job walked, Job was a, a, a holy, righteous man that eschewed evil and he walked perfectly. Alright? So people say, you see, Job was perfect. No, no. What Job did was perfectly keep the covenant. Doesn't mean that he himself was perfect. What he did was he obeyed every aspect of the covenant. Now, this is what God is requiring of Abraham. God says, I'm about to cut covenant with you, but I want you to make sure you understand what is required of you, and this is what I'm going to do. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee. And look at what God says. I will multiply thee exceedingly. And the word multiply means to increase, to bring in abundance. See? And God says, that's what I'm going to do. Abraham falls on his face and God talked with him saying, now I want you to see what God does. We've got a strange kind of mentality that says every time that God speaks to us, God requires something of us. Interesting, when God cuts covenant, God doesn't require anything of us. God doesn't. God stipulates what the conditions are, and if I want the blessings of the covenant, I have to follow them. That is the stipulation. But have a look. God doesn't say, I'm going to cut covenant if you'll do the following. Have a look at these first words here in verse 4. God says, I'm going to bless you as for me. This is God speaking. God says to Abraham, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. My covenant is with you, and you will be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name be, and so on, so on. And he gets into covenant relationship. And I don't want to get into that aspect yet, but I want you to see something. God immediately that he comes into covenant says, this is what I've done. As for me, this is what I've done. Do you know that when we get born again, it's exactly what it is? He says, look, the work's done. This is what I've done for you. As for me, I've sent my son. I've paid the price. You see, God doesn't see us as sinners. We don't have a sin problem in the earth. We don't have a sin problem. The sin problem has been dealt with at Calvary. What we have in the earth is a sinner problem. Sin does not have any power to hold a person who wants to be free of it. 
If we had a sin problem, then it meant, hey, we, we've got no remedy. There's no antidote. But I want you to know, we don't have a sin problem. The sin problem was dealt with at Calvary. We have a sinner problem. So we have people who are still dictated to by sin because they don't realize that sin has been dealt a death blow. But when they come to a place where they get insight, they're taught, and they're told, this is what's happened at Calvary, and sin can't hold you. And they say, by faith I receive that, and they bow the knee of their will, and they say, I receive that forgiveness that's already been provided. The power of sin to hold them is broken. Can't hold them any longer. So we don't have a sin problem. We have a sinner problem in the earth. And God comes along and God says, this is the covenant. Through what Jesus has done, sin has been dealt with. Through what Jesus has done, everything that sin produced, weakness, sickness, pain, disease, lack of every description, has already been put aside. If you will enter into covenant relationship with me, I have ensured that that has been dealt with. This is the abundance that I am bringing you into. Nobody in their right mind really believes that I'm brought out of the authority of the kingdom of darkness and I'm brought into the kingdom of impoverishment of God. Come on now. Who would want to do that? Not me. Not me. You mean I've got to, I've got to give up? And don't kid yourself that sin's not nice. Come on. Sin's nice for a season. It'll turn real bitter because it's going to kill you. Okay? But while you do... Hey, sin's nice. Come on. You wouldn't have spent your life doing it if it wasn't so nice. Come on. There's some Christians who still go back there. <laughs> what? Because sin's nice for a season. But it's going to kill you. And that's why God's against it. But you see, if, if, if the attraction is getting into the kingdom of God where there is nothing and I'm going to be downtrodden and kicked and under the heel of the devil. Why would I want to come out of that? Because back there, at least I enjoyed sin. Are we connecting? No. God's kingdom is a kingdom of abundance. Abundant grace, that's God's ability extended towards us. You do not have to sin. Abundance in every area. Everything that you touch will prosper, the Word of God says. Whatever you set your hand to will prosper. Led by the Spirit of God, you weren't able to have that. You weren't able to experience the comfort and reassurance of the presence of the Holy Spirit when you were in that kingdom of darkness. You came out into the fullness of what God has provided. Now you've got to learn to walk in it. But that's what God has done. So there he says to us, that's what I'm doing for you. Now, man has to either accept or reject it, but we can't change it. Go across to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and I want you to uh, read with me verse 46. Here comes the establishing of a principle. And we've got to understand this because we're talking covenant. And I mentioned last week that we're talking old covenant, new covenant. Old contract, new contract. And as we've seen, the scripture says, if the old 
was able to accomplish what God wanted it to accomplish, he would not have superseded it with another covenant. But there was need for another covenant because the old covenant had fulfilled and accomplished what God intended it to accomplish. And it couldn't have been ideal because if it was, per, if it was ideal for all time, God would not have changed it. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who, because of religious tradition and, 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 and teaching, hang on to expressions and terminology and live back in the old covenant. Why would you want to do that? Because your mind hasn't been renewed in all probability. But when you start understanding the fullness of the new covenant, now we're going to get into that in about two weeks' time. We're still dealing with old covenant because we're laying this foundation. But this, this teaching of blood covenant relationship is the most important teaching, I believe, any Christian can receive. You do not understand a whole lot of things about the Christian life until you start understanding blood covenant relationship. Now have a look here at verse 46. Verse 46, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thank you. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural, and afterwards that which is spiritual. Two covenants, an old and a new. And God was dealing with a natural people in Israel under the old covenant, under the old contract, under the old agreement. A natural people. They were called the servants of God. They were called the people of God. They never were called the sons of God. They were called the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but never were they called sons of God. And God is dealing with an Old Testament, an Old Covenant people who were not born again. They couldn't have been because Jesus hadn't been to Calvary. Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. That's when the first born-again person walked the earth. He became the firstborn from the dead. And he became the older brother of everyone who would put their faith in what God had done there. And we become brothers to our older brother, Jesus. And I'm not speaking in any way, um, you know, derogatorily. We need to understand this. And so that which is first was not spiritual. It was natural. Israel were natural. But afterwards, that which is spiritual. And God was looking beyond natural Israel to a time where spiritually people in the earth would be alive unto Him just like Adam was before the fall. When He walked with Him in the cool of the day and there was interaction and there could be because it was spirit to spirit and it was unmarred by sin. Couldn't do that with natural Israel. And so he introduced a law. Parameters were established by God. And he said, now if you want to walk with me and fellowship with me, I'm going to be to you everything that I've committed in my covenant to be. But you've got to observe these things. And that's what the covenant was. When Jesus came, he didn't come to do away with the covenant. He fulfilled it. And he introduced the new covenant in his blood, which many times we quote when we go and have communion. Okay? Now, 
having laid that foundation, let me give you six characteristics of blood covenants. This is how a blood covenant is characterized. This is what makes up a blood covenant relationship. We're going to deal with it in the natural, and we're going to have a look at what its spiritual parallel is. First of all, the first characteristic of a blood covenant is this. It is life-binding. It's a life-binding covenant. It's life-binding for the duration of the purpose of its existence. It is there for a particular period of time. And it's interesting that God has established the period of time. Not every blood covenant is an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant. It has to be declared to be so because the purpose for its existence needs to be for that duration. You can enter into a covenant, a blood covenant, with each other regarding an enemy who's coming over the hill and we are going to covenant with each other that we won't go against each other until we've defeated him. So when he's defeated, the purpose for the existence of that covenant, it's been met. It's no longer needed. Do you understand? But now, God goes along and God commits himself to a blood covenant relationship with us and he talks about a thousand generations. See? So some people say, well, that's a a thousand generations. A generation is 40 years. So you're looking at 40,000 years. God's talking in language that we can relate to. He's saying it's going to go on. You're not going to be here for 40,000 years. Okay? So from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, as long as your generations are in this earth, God commits himself to covenant relationship. So it's a life-binding covenant. This applies equally to all the parties. Anybody who comes in as a party to the contract, that is for them. The blood covenant is the most solemn, sacred agreement that you can enter into. And if you break it, you forfeit your life. Now you see, in America we've been educated out of it. But go to the North American Indian and talk to him about blood covenant relationship. He understands it. He understands it. He understands it where blood flows and blood flows between two parties and they come into agreement. I'm giving my life. My, I'm staking my life on this agreement. And anybody who breaks it, who is a party to that, anybody who breaks it, pays for the breaking of the covenant with their life. Second interesting thing or characteristic about a blood covenant is this. The greater party always covenants with the lesser party. Have you noticed that God's greater than you? Some people don't think that, but it's true. And when you enter into a covenant relationship with God, that's what happens. God is greater. God initiates. God stipulates what the conditions are going to be. You and I get the opportunity of choosing whether we want to be in it or not. But we can't change it. We can't alter it. A lot of Christians alter the conditions of the covenant. Immediately you do that, you move outside of covenant. You start moving then in what is called the mercy of God. You're not in covenant protection. So the greater always covenants with the lesser. Number three. Here is the symbolism of blood sharing or blood covenanting. 
There is symbolism. And this is what the symbolism is. Two lives become one. Everything that one party owns and owes, the other party to the contract now owns and owes. All debts, all liabilities, all assets, all possessions now become the possession of your covenant partner. Same thing happens in marriage. I do not understand marriages. Nobody understands marriages. Where, <laughs> no, let me call it. Everybody understands marriages. Nobody understands a marriage where one partner, having been married before, comes into a marriage relationship and they already, from the first marriage, have got children and the partner they're going to marry says, I don't receive those as my children. Don't marry that person. That's nonsense. You, you take whatever that person brings in. Everything that makes up you. You mean those children now have got to be discarded by the mother because the, the new father won't receive them? Don't marry him. He's not, worthy. He's not worth it. He's not worthy of you. He's not. See? Now, uh, number four. The parties entering the covenant are known as covenant heads. This is very important. Covenant heads. If John and I enter into covenant, blood covenant relationship, he is a covenant head, I'm a covenant head. Head of what? Head of a family. Because when we covenant together, our families immediately are in covenant relationship. You're going to start understanding, because of blood covenant relationship, why it was that David, in the cave, could not slay Saul. Not because he was king only, but because he had a covenant with Jonathan. And Jonathan was the son of Saul. He couldn't go and kill Jonathan's father, even though the father was the enemy. He was covenant obligated to preserve his life because he would be going against his covenant. That's how far covenant goes. If we understand that principle, we're going to stop character assassination of brothers and sisters when we realize they're also in covenant with the Lord and they're in covenant therefore with us. Covenant bound to preserve integrity, to ensure that their character is intact, that we are not guilty of bringing them down or indicating or intimating them to be anything other than great in the eyes of other people by what we say. Covenant relationship. The parties entering it are known as covenant heads. We read last week in Genesis 17, verse 23 and onwards, you can go and read that yourself, that when Moses, sorry, when Abraham had this presented to him, Abraham said, I want in. God said, if you want in, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to circumcise yourself. So he goes along and he circumcises himself, and he takes every slave and every one of his family members who are male, and he goes, and the same day, the whole family entered into covenant with him. They didn't just say, well, the covenant head's got to do it. Covenant head said, hey, every one of my people are going to carry the same mark of the covenant. Why? Because I'm a covenant head and my family enters into covenant relationship. 
See, you can't be in covenant with God by yourself and your family not. And that's why you need to understand the need for us as parents to raise up our children, to train them up in the way that they ought to go. And you must know what your covenant is. And you must teach your children your covenant. And I dare say, and I'm going to go further than that, I, and, and, and I know we start running into areas called, you know, where does my authority begin and end? Well, my, if I've got a covenant with God, I'm going to go down and I'm going to teach my grandchildren whether, my, whether their parents want it or not. Every opportunity I'm going to get, I'm going to teach the grandchildren. They're part of my family. Amen? Well, you're elbowing. No, 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 no. I shouldn't have to elbow in. <laughs> Amen. I shouldn't have to. I should be in a position where in a relaxed atmosphere I can say, mm, I know I've trained my child well. My child's going to be raising their child the way that it needs to be done. This particular contract cannot be annulled. Grandchildren, hundreds of years later, are going to be bound by the terms and the conditions of covenant. And the interesting thing about this is that what one party does, the other party has to do, is covenant bound. For example, you see, you start understanding now a little bit about Abraham's covenant, and in a couple of weeks we'll talk about in detail the Abrahamic covenant. But here is, uh, here is a covenant requirement. That when one party requires something, one head requires something of the other head, it can be expected to be done as well by the party requiring it. What one party does, the other can be expected to do, can be expected of him. For example, God says to Abraham, now Isaac's been born, and God appears to him in his tent, and God says to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. What mental torment that could be. But Father, I'm confused. Is this the devil speaking to me? Because you said that out of Isaac, I'm going to be blessed. But you want me to go along and sacrifice him. Is this the devil? God's checking attitude of heart. How dear is this to you? Have I been pushed aside now because you've got the son? Has the son become your focus in life? And so the Lord says to him, I want you to take your son, your, your only son. And I want you to sacrifice him. And I'm sure that night, Abraham battled in his tent. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham left that tent having received again Isaac. And his attitude, that's, this is what it means. His attitude was, God, you asked me to do it. I know that you spoke. I'm going to go and sacrifice him. You have told me, God, that Isaac is the one through whom the covenant is going to be established. And you're asking me to kill him? I'm going to do it. But Abraham received Isaac. His attitude was, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'm trusting you. I don't have to know the detail. This is what you required of me. It's done. Even to the point where he's lifted the knife and he's about to plunge it into his son, and the angel appears and says, hang on, God's checked you out, you passed the test. But in his heart, he said, God, if you've got to raise him from the dead before we come down the mountain, you're going to have to do it because I'm going to build in a safeguard. 
And when he leaves the servants at the foot of the mountain, he says, the lad and I will return. <laughs> okay? We'll be back in three days. We will return. He understood covenant. Interestingly enough, when Abraham was required of God, do you want this? Yes, God, I want this covenant. Go and circumcise yourself. Blood flowed. And when blood flowed, one party to the covenant had started signing. But for any contract to be in effect, all the parties to the contract have to sign it. How does God bleed? Abraham had no idea. Didn't have any idea. But he knew that God had to at some time bleed. And through the bleeding, God was signing blood covenant. There is no blood covenant unless blood flows. I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but we know what happened at Calvary. And blood flowed. And at Calvary, God signed the covenant. But hang on, that's hundreds of years after Abraham. Yeah, because God's not bound by time. And when Abraham entered into the covenant, God said, that's fine, I've, I've committed to bless you. And I'm just going to keep blessing you in terms of the covenant arrangement, even though it hasn't yet been signed in blood. We'll get there with Abrahamic covenant. But I need you to understand, here's a principle, what one requires, the other covenant head can require of them. Term number five, sorry, uh, characteristic number five. The terms of the contract. Do you know that every contract has terms of agreement? Here they are, and they start listing them. And whether you go and lease a, an apartment, whether you go and buy a car, uh, whatever it is, if you enter into a relationship with a person based on an agreement, there will be terms and conditions placed in their contract. God has done the same thing. The terms and the conditions of blood covenant are called the blessings and the curses. Those are the terms and the conditions. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we have there a detailed list. God says, if you will hearken unto my voice, if you will be obedient to my word, then... These blessings will come upon you and overtake you. And he starts listing all the blessings that are going to be ours if we keep the terms. They are the terms and the conditions. You'll be blessed there. What are the conditions there? If you'll hearken to my voice, if you'll diligently obey what I instruct you to do. Those are terms and conditions. And they produce blessing. But he gets to verse 15 and he says, But... All these curses will come upon you and overtake you if you don't obey what I instruct you to do. If you don't hear and you won't obey, then these curses are going to come upon you. Those are terms and conditions. And so as we get into the Christian experience, we find the blessings and the curses of the covenant. A lot of people say, I don't know why that happened. There are lots of things that we don't know. Lots of things we are not going to understand in this life unless the Lord reveals them to us. But the things that have been explained to us, brought to our attention, and which we have enlightenment, those are the things in which we have to walk. And so the blessings of the, uh, the curses are also known as the law of the covenant. They govern the covenant. They regulate it. Now, number six. Here is the sign of covenanting. 
I want you to go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. The sign of the covenant. Because you see, uh, we're not a generation that looks for signs, but I, I do believe this, that we need to be more discerning in what is taking place around about us. There were signs of the covenant. When people entered into blood covenant relationship in the incision, once blood had flowed, they would take, originally they would take ash, or later on they took gunpowder, and they put it in the incision that had been made. Now, as that grew over and scarred, the darkness of that mark was still there. So when they walked through, I mentioned the explorer Stanley last week. When he went through Africa, he covenanted, entered into blood covenant relationship over 50 times. That means that he had at least 50 scars on his arms. We'd, he'd entered into covenant relationship. So he would walk through and he would just show the sign of the covenant. Interestingly enough, the covenant was invariably made in the right hand. Most people are right-handed. The right hand is the hand the, the hand of your strength, your might, see, is, is, is in the right hand. If you carried a sword, you would invariably use the right hand to use the sword. It was the hand that was threatening. It's also the hand that is extended in friendship. That's why it's done in the right hand, covenanting. When I'm in covenant, I can't be using the hand of my might against you. So here God goes along and he says, uh, okay, I, I want to have marks in the covenant. Abraham had a mark in his body. He knew what it was. It was between him and God, but he knew what it was. His children and their children's children, even today, in the natural, have that mark in their body. It's traditional. I don't think they understand, many of them, the covenant aspect. But that's what they do traditionally. They circumcise the baby on the eighth day, if it's a boy. See? Now, so here the, the incision is made and the incision is filled. It's an indication to friend and to foe alike. I've got a covenant relationship. It's advertising the fact that I've got a covenant relationship. But you and I do not have the marks of covenant with God in our bodies. Have a look at verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2. In whom you uh, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, where's the circumcision of Christ? Go with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. You see, we use, we use these, these terms so glibly and we keep our thinking in the old covenant relationship. But here is Paul writing to a new covenant church and he's bringing some revelation. Have a look here at verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Not just by what you do, but also... Uh, by circumcision in the body, in the flesh, right? Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. He's talking spiritually now. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. Do you get that? 
You see, you can go through all the activities and all the gyrations and you can look like one outwardly, but it's interesting, God does not view who constitutes His people by outward appearance. God's checking the heart is the circumcision of the heart. And the circumcision always speaks of the cutting away of that which is superfluous. Circumcision of the heart, cutting away of that which is not needed. That which is not needed. God's checking us out in our hearts. God's checking us out and saying, is that my child? See, I I believe that he knows just by his spirit. Because when the circumcision takes place, his spirit bears witness that we are the sons and the daughters of God. That's what we read in Romans. How do you know that you're born again? Well, I went forward at a certain meeting and so on and so on. No, that's not why you're born again. You're born again, the word of God tells us. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the sons of God. See, have you got that witness? Do you have the witness? I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. No matter what happens to me today, I'm a child of God. If I step in the next minute into eternity, I'm a son of God. The issue settled. I've got peace. The witness, the, the witness is born, spirit to spirit, that I'm a son of God. Now, I want to give some, uh, in closing, some outward signs that we have today of blood covenant relationship. Some outward signs. Some terminology that we, we, we perhaps even use. And it's just to give an indication that blood covenant relationship, in actual fact, my, uh, many times, the terminology has been retained in our, in our everyday language. Uh, terminology that goes like this, that blood is thicker than water. Where does that come from? That's blood covenant relationship. When you talk about my own flesh and blood, my own flesh, my own blood, You've heard the expression, bad blood. Okay? People who've fallen foul of each other with covenant relationship. Uh, Obviously, the scripture, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We're going to be having a look at this friendship aspect. Because blood covenant, in actual fact, is a covenant of deep friendship. Not the kind of friendship that we have today. We don't have many friendships. We have acquaintances. We're sort of waving. There's no bonding. There's no coming together. There's no commitment. We'll have a look at what covenant relationship is. But here are some signs and customs of blood covenant relationship. First of all, a wedding ring. A wedding ring. Do you know that um, uh, there was a time when, uh, when, when wedding rings were worn on the thumb? I see that's coming more and more into vogue. People are wearing thumb rings. Some people wear toe rings. I've never heard of blood covenant cut in the toe, but certainly in the thumb. And what they would do is the thumb would be bound at the base like that so that the blood, the blood supply is cut off and um, the blood that is in the thumb, in the, in, the, in the head of the thumb, there would then be an incision made in the thumb of the one partner and they would, they would have thumbs that are tied together, blood flowing. Uh, when you got into covenant relationship, having gone that way, you obviously would then want your own thumb back, all right? So, but I've got a gash in my thumb. 
So what would they do? They would apply the ash or the gunpowder there, but that thing until it healed. Have you ever tried to use your hand without your thumb? It's the one finger that relates to all the others. And that's where we get the expression, it sticks out like a sore thumb. See? You can't use that, man. Can't grab anything, you can't hold anything uh, until that heals. Sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's a mark of the covenant. You'll find in Europe, for example, a, a wedding ring is, is, is worn uh, sometimes on the right hand. Most times it's worn on the left hand, uh, on the third finger of the left hand, called the ring finger. And the reason that that finger was chosen was because there was a belief at one stage that there was a, a nerve that ran from that finger directly to the heart. It's not true, but that's what they thought. That's why they wear it there. So um, my, my wedding band is a, a commitment to my partner. I, I love you with all my... <laughs> you got it. Okay. Now, um, the signet ring. You find that uh, is, is, is another expression, a signet ring. Now, we don't use this much today, and yet we use a seal. The seal, the stamp... The seal has been has replaced the signet ring. There was a time when they would write on on tablets of um, what is it that soft stuff wax, okay, and they would take an impression of the king's ring, or Genesis chapter forty one, Pharaoh's ring in Joseph's case, and Pharaoh's ring impression, the signet ring applied to it was an indication of the sanction of Pharaoh. It was sealed with the king's ring. That's what you'll read about, Genesis 41, verses 41 and 42. Um, interesting that the signet ring stood for the person, and the, the signet ring represented his life, and it therefore represented his blood. The life is in the blood. Uh, what happened to the prodigal son when he came back? Put a... On his finger. Okay, why? Because it's an indication of restoration of covenant relationship. My son, which was lost, is now back with me. He's back in the fold. We're in covenant relationship again. Put the mark on his hand. See? So when he goes along and he's down at the, at, at the provision store and he's signing for something... He's got the ring because we're in covenant. Whatever I've got belongs to him. Hello, do you understand that? See? So he can go along. He's back in covenant relationship and he can use it wherever he wants to use it. And I'll vouch for it. In marriage, two scriptures there very quickly. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, marriage today is a covenant relationship. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but God is going to hold you to it. Verse 14 says, Yet you say, Wherefore? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. There is a strange teaching that somehow crept into church circles some time back, and it's this, that now I got born again. When I got, when I got married, I wasn't born again. But now that I'm born again, I'm this new creature, and so the person that I marry, I can set aside and find a new one. No, 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 no. 
This scripture speaks right against that. When you married, even though you didn't know God, you married before God, and that is an indication that God is looking at that marriage as being a covenant relationship. Amen? You can parallel that with Proverbs 2, 16 and 17. And that's what you're saying to your marriage partner. We're in covenant relationship. And then the the fourth uh, custom and sign of blood covenant relationship in our daily lives, we find in the church. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, you don't have to turn there, but Paul talks about having the right hand of fellowship extended. The extending of the right hand. That is a sign of covenant relationship. Do you know, the sadness to me is that we have very little understanding of blood covenant relationship with each other in the body of Christ. Very little understanding. But I'm believing that that's going to change. I'm believing that we are going to appreciate increasingly that because we've got a covenant relationship with the Lord, our covenant relationship extends to our brothers and our sisters. And we've got to value them and appreciate them just the way that Jesus values and appreciates us because of covenant. And He is covenant bound to do it. Take the hand of the person next to you. Father, we want to bless you this morning. Father, we want to bless you this morning for the revelation of truth. Oh, we pray. We pray that the truth will dawn on our spirits. Open the eyes of our spiritual understanding that we will start appreciating in greater degrees the covenant that we have with you. What you've done for us. How you've provided for us. We bless you. We thank you for covenant relationship. And we pray, Father, that each one of us will seek to walk out in the days that lie ahead the covenant requirements that you have for us. Thank you for the week that we're coming into. Thank you that we are not left alone. You said you never would leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.